Okay, let's get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our great Father, we do come before you now and bow in our hearts to give you praise and worship and adoration, which you so rightly deserve. Lord, we're thankful for the privilege we have as the body of Christ to come together and to fellowship and to corporately worship you. Lord, thank you for your scriptures and the privilege we have to walk through them week by week. Pray that you would use your word to guide our minds and our hearts. Lord, where we are not in agreement with what the word says, help us to yield to the authority of the scriptures, to incorporate them into our thinking and to be guided by the Spirit to think according to the Word as we look at the world around us. Lord, that's our desire, that's our hope, and we desire to please you by being conformed to the mind of Christ. So Lord, uh, thank you again for this great privilege to come together. We give you honor and praise this day. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. So this is week number 46 in our study of the book of Daniel. I want to thank Andy for taking the helm last week and uh, guiding the discussion of the word. I always appreciate when he does that. And um, as I was out, three weeks before that, the, the three weeks before that, we have been looking at verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9 uh, attempting to gain an understanding of what Gabriel referred to when he spoke to Daniel and said that there, a decree would go out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And then after 69 weeks, seven weeks and 62 weeks, uh, the Messiah would come. So 69 weeks from the issuing of a decree until Messiah. And... Previously, we've looked at a rationale that it's reasonable to interpret these weeks, really literally um, periods of seven is what the literal interpretation would be, as years individually. And so 69 weeks, 69 times seven, 483 years from the issuing of a decree until Messiah would come. So what decree was Gabriel referring to, and, we, and we've looked at this. Uh, there was a decree by Cyrus shortly after uh, the Babylonians fell to the Persians uh, in 538 BC that um, the Jews should return to Jerusalem because Cyrus felt like it was his responsibility to build God's house again, to rebuild it. And so he made a decree and sent people back. Zerubbabel led that group of people. They went back, and after a short period of time, they built the altar, started the morning and evening sacrifices, and then built the foundation of the temple, intending to build the temple. And yet they were thwarted in their efforts because of the surrounding peoples were hostile towards them and said, if you continue to build, we will attack. And so for 18 years, the work lay not being done. And then ultimately, um, 
Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene, begin to prophesy. Zerubbabel is encouraged. And so after 18 years of doing nothing, they begin to build the temple again. And ultimately, Darius the Great, Darius I, um, a, a new Persian king, uh, repeats the decree of Cyrus. He found it and repeated it and then added to it the punishment of death if you try to stop this work. And so they finished the temple and um, were able to complete that 70 years after the first temple had been destroyed, 486, and then the new temple built, sorry, 586, new temple built and completed in 516. And then many years later, in 458 BC, Artaxerxes I, another Persian king, made a decree that Ezra could return and continue the work. And Ezra's work wasn't to rebuild anything, but it was to teach the people the law of God, in which he was an expert, uh, having been a scribe who uh, had access to all of the historical Jewish documents, including uh, the scriptures. And so he went back to teach the people the ways of God, and certainly he found them somewhat in disarray, having intermarried, had to undo all of that. Those men actually divorced all those ladies, um, sent those ladies and their children away, and purified the land. So a horrendous time for all those people who had intermarried, but nevertheless, it's what God called for in order to cleanse the land. And so then we looked at a final place where 18 wrong, 13 years after Ezra went back, Nehemiah got permission from the same king, Artaxerxes I, to go back to collect materials to rebuild the walls and the gates. Um, no decree made at that time, just papers and permission given by the king. So we really have three decrees that were made, uh, one in 538 B.C., one in 520 B.C., and then the third one in 458 B.C. by Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. And so the question is, which one of these did um, Gabriel refer to, if he referred to any of them? And the key, I think, the understanding of how all this works together and works into the prophecy that Gabriel gave is in Ezra 6.14 where all three of these kings and their decrees are said to fulfill the command of God himself. And so these kings, while they were doing what they wanted to, they were acting volitionally, they were issuing decrees that had authority, they were all superintended, working underneath, God using them to fulfill his command that Jerusalem would be restored and rebuilt. And so it's the command of God that trumps what men were doing. And so all of these um, are spoken of in that verse as a single decree given by the Persians to fulfill the command of God. So I see them all being spoken of in the prophecy or the message that Gabriel gave to Daniel. He was referring to all three of them. And so that decree 
was not complete until Artaxerxes I gave his second decree, or gave his decree to Ezra to return in 458 BC. And so that completed the decree, and I believe that's the time when the 69 weeks began to, the clock started. And it would be 69 weeks until Messiah would come. And so we've looked at those things. That's the background of what we've been talking about, what we've been looking at, kind of a summary of what we've done the last three weeks. So we're not quite finished with chapter, uh, with verse 25. We'll be back there again today. This will be our ninth week in verses 24 and 25. So it takes a while to work through these things. But let me just read that passage, Daniel 9, 24 and 25. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So hopefully as you read those verses now or listen to them, there are things that go off in your mind. I mean, we spent eight weeks here. <laughs> Hopefully things go off in your mind that begin to put the historical and what is to be accomplished in the 70 weeks together. Because God, this is the the message of God about his decree for these 70 weeks. So this isn't man's decree. This is a a Persian decree. This is the, the decree of the great creator of what will happen in his creation. And then simply, Gabriel's job is to carry the message to Daniel and to give it to him, not knowing that Gabriel probably did not understand everything that he was saying that would come to pass. Because, I mean, we see in the scriptures that the angels don't know everything. They only know what God has given them. And in this particular case, he gave this message to Gabriel to give to Daniel. Neither one of those, Gabriel the angel or Daniel the man, knew all that was being unfolded here. There's no way they could have because there's much much to happen in the future. But they had some understanding. And this passage is given to give understanding and discernment. And so we have a great advantage over both of them at that time and that we have the rest of the scriptures We have the New Testament scriptures. We have uh, all the words of Jesus and the apostles. And so we have a lot more information than they had. Um, And that's a great privilege for us. And so we're working to try and understand how this works, knowing how history has unfolded over the last 2,500 years since this message was given, and yet looking for additional things to happen in the future. So what else could there be in verse 25 to talk about, right? I mean, we've been here a long time. But there are a few things that I want to note and point out here. This verse refers, verse 25, to the 
the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. And it's not like it's in doubt if that will happen. You notice the verse says that it will be built again. And then it goes on with plaza and moat even in times of distress. So there's no doubt in Gabriel's mind or in Daniel's mind that this is going to happen because God said it would. And um, it would happen in times of distress. Now, this is the temple that's being rebuilt in this passage and in what we looked at in Ezra through in Nehemiah. This is the temple that Jesus Christ cleansed the money changers and the merchants out of twice. So this is the same temple that Jesus Christ went to worship God in in his day and time. It had been greatly expanded by Nero, uh, been improved dramatically by the time Christ had grown up and started his ministry. But nevertheless, it's the same base temple. It's the same holy of holies, the same holy place, the same altar, all of that's the same as Jesus Christ saw in his ministry. So this temple does last for a long time, lasts all the way till 70 AD when it is destroyed. So I saw this and it says, um, New American Standard says um, that it will be built with plaza and moat. If you look at some of the other translations, the King James and the New King James says it'll be built with um, streets and a wall. Nothing mentioned about a moat. And then you look at the ESV, and it says it'll be built with plaza and with a moat. So I looked in the historical accounts and said, okay, was there ever a moat around Jerusalem? And there never has been a moat all the way around Jerusalem that I could find. But there was a moat that was built in the 11th century during the Crusades. Uh, while the Muslims had control of the city, um, the northern wall, northern western wall, is the weakest area of defense for the city of Jerusalem. And so they dug a moat. And it even has a paved bottom to it. They've uncovered that in the last five years or so. They found the bottom of that moat, really a ditch, if you would, as opposed to what I think of as a moat. And when the um, crusaders, the Christian crusaders, were coming against Jerusalem, um, they were paid gold to fill in this moat with dirt so that they could build a siege wall, you know, siege ramp against the wall of the city, which they did um, and ultimately overtook the city. That was in the 1090s BC, uh, AD. And, you know, those crusades go back and forth a lot. The Christians take the city, then the Muslims take the city, then the Christians take the city, and the Muslims take the city. And it goes back and forth multiple times. But there was a moat at that time to the northwestern part of the city. So that's the only place I could find where there was a moat. That doesn't mean 
that when if the if another temple is built that there won't be a moat around Jerusalem could still be yet future um, but both the New American Standard and the ESV refer to streets and plazas with moats um, so maybe it was that that was the moat or maybe not maybe there's going to be another moat uh, in the future and clearly a city the size of Jerusalem would need streets it would need plazas where people could gather together and so those things make sense but this city will be restored and rebuilt says God now the question is did that happen in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah or is there yet a future time and the key to thinking about that is in the phrase that says that this will be done even in times of distress. Now, you think about times of distress and the city of Jerusalem. Um, we know that in what we looked at in Ezra, it was a time of distress. I mean, Zerubbabel started to build the foundation, started to build the temple, and could not continue because of the threats of the people that surrounded Jerusalem, um, Judah. And so I would call that a time of distress. You can't do what you want to do because people are threatening to attack you and kill you if you try to. So that would be a time of distress. When, Nehem, uh, yeah, when Nehemiah goes and actually rebuilds the walls and the gates, they have to do the work with weapons at their side, literally in their hand. In one hand, you do the work. In the other hand, you hold a weapon because, again, the surrounding peoples were threatening to attack them, even try to trick Nehemiah into meeting with them together and let's go into the temple and close the doors. And Nehemiah says, not on your life. That's not going to happen. We're not going to meet, and we're going to continue to build the wall. And in 52 days, they finished the walls and put all the gates up. And so I would call that a time of distress. People trying to trick you, people threatening you, you having to work with a weapon in your hand to ward off those who would stop you from doing the work you're called to do. And so um, that would be a time of distress. So all of this that we've looked at, Ezra and Nehemiah um, and Zerubbabel, would be a time of distress. But then there's other times of distress. You remember we looked at um, in chapter 8 um, and the vision of the ram and the goat. Uh, the goat being uh, um, uh, the Greek empire that is split into four empires. And the ultimately leads to um, Antiochus Epiphanes coming and not destroying Jerusalem, but certainly tearing down a lot of the houses, a lot of the buildings in Jerusalem, desecrating the temple and the altar by building an altar over it on which he offered human beings and they did this once every month for six years. They offered human beings on that altar. And so certainly desecrating the city and destroying a lot and ultimately 
when the Jews come back and take control of Jerusalem, there's a lot of restoring and rebuilding and cleansing of the temple and uh, tearing down the altar of Zeus and all of that and getting rid of the houses of worship to those pagan gods. And so a lot of restoration and rebuilding had to be done. And clearly that was a time of distress. Antiochus continuing to attack them after they had retaken the city. I don't know if you remember it or not, but the, the troops of Antiochus went down to the city of David and built a wall there, and that's where they were housed, only a few miles from Jerusalem. And so they continued to raid the city and attack. And that war goes on for multiple years after the Jews retake Jerusalem. So clearly a time of distress when they're again rebuilding Jerusalem. So that's another time in history. You can think about the time when Christ came and Nero was greatly expanding this temple and made it much more glorious than it was that Zerubbabel had built or that any of the Jews had built. But just shortly before that, the Hasmonean dynasty, which ruled for about 150 years over Jerusalem, was Jewish in nature, was overthrown by the Romans. And at the time when that temple was rebuilt, Nero rebuilt the temple, they were in occupied territory. The Romans were, had established their own rulers. And so I think you could call that a time of distress, that the, you know, they were occupied. Many Christians were ultimately martyred by the Roman Empire. Any of those who gave assent to Jesus Christ were persecuted, even by the Jews and the Romans. And so a time of, of great distress. So, you know, which, which of these is Gabriel referring to? Is it Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah? Or is it the time after Antiochus Epiphanes? Is it the time of Nero? Or is it yet some future time? Because we know this, that for in Daniel and in the book of Revelation, there must be another temple. You know, today there's no temple, right? Hadn't been a temple since 70 AD. But there has to be a temple in order for the scriptures to be literally fulfilled because the abomination of desolation which stops the sacrifices will take place during the time of the great tribulation. Well, if that's true, then there has to be a temple and there has to be an altar because you can't have the sacrifices and the grain offerings and the daily sacrifices and the burnt offerings and all of that without having a temple and without having an altar. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and how that will take place. I mean, you got to move from the Dome of the Rock to the Temple of God. Or, or maybe there's syncretism where the Jews and the Muslims for a period, because there's, in the tribulation, 
the first half that we're given here in Daniel and just the next verse is a time of peace. But it's a time of peace because the world is in upheaval. There are a lot of natural disasters that take place. Yeah, and, and at least 25% of all the people on the planet die in that first couple of years of the tribulation. Now, you're talking, today there's 7 billion people on the planet. So you're talking about something upwards of 2 billion people losing their lives. And that's a lot of people. And so there's cataclysmic things happening. And because of that, people are willing to give assent to a leader who will rise up and establish peace among the nations. And probably will be something that is syncretistic, mixing Muslim with um, Catholic and with um, Jewish that allows a temple to be real, rebuilt and each to worship in his own way, which means the Jews could start their sacrifices. The ultimate the ul Right. Right. This is, the one, this is the one world religion that you talk about or that you see talking, spoken of in the scriptures. And so that will clearly be a time of distress. And there's got to be another temple built. So was Gabriel referring to that yet future time? You don't know. I don't think Gabriel knew. And you can't be dogmatic about one versus the other. Now, it's clear that shortly after this prophecy was given, Jerusalem was rebuilt. There's no doubt about that. But it was rebuilt multiple times, and it yet will have to be rebuilt again, at least the temple will, in order for the scriptures to be fulfilled, even what is written in the next chapter of Daniel. For that to take place, there must be a temple. And Jesus Christ in his ministry spoke of Daniel and the abomination of desolation that is yet to happen, spoken in a future tense by the Lord Jesus himself. So, and, you know, people point to 70 A.D. There was no abomination of desolation in 70 A.D. They did not desecrate the, the temple. Clearly, they destroyed it, but that's not an abomination of desolation. Sure. You know, even today, the war in Ukraine is sending a lot of Jews back to Israel because there's a lot of Jews in, U in the Ukraine who are leaving and going to Israel, putting stress on Israel. So, and that's been going on since 42, uh, 1942, when Israel reestablished themselves uh, as a state, or at least really the council after after the war established them as a state it's amazing how manipulated the middle east is by the two great world wars that established much in the middle east uh, trying to establish peace but ultimately causing it to be even worse but they've been it, the jews have been returning to israel some by uh, will some by distress such as we see going on today.
Um, but there's still only not even 7 million Jews in Israel itself. So there's still a lot more that are in other places that will ultimately, as Andy said, um, return. Well, actually, it's them returning, but God bringing them back. And that's given clearly in the scriptures that it's God who's orchestrating and bringing the Jews back to Israel. So which time of distress does Gabriel mean when he says that the city will be rebuilt and restored in times of distress? Um, you don't know. It could have been then or it could be yet future. And anybody who presumes to be able to establish and say it was definitely here, um, on what basis? You know, I mean, just because you think that's right? So I don't know when it is. Um, I tend to think of it as yet future, that the city will be, or the, at least the temple will be rebuilt in times of distress, but I could be wrong. It could have been one of those in the past uh, that Gabriel was referring to. But we know this, there's still much more to be done for the, for the prophecies to be fulfilled. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of what has happened in history and even is happening today is a foreshadowing of what is yet to come. Um, and again, I could be wrong, but that's the way that it, it fits together with what is given in the scriptures and what we've seen in history. And, you know, you think about, well, how could, how could two billion people be wiped out? Well, we just had a little virus, right, that wiped out millions. And so one of the things given in the scriptures is pestilence, which is disease, which could be a virus that's much worse than what we just had, that just wipes out scores of people, many, many more than what we've seen so far or what was actually reported, you know. So you just don't know how all of this is going to play out. But you know certain things have got to take place. And again, 70 AD, there was no abomination of desolation. There was no desecrating of the altar of God. There was destruction, but that's not the same thing as desecrating. And, and Daniel and the Lord Jesus spoke about the abomination of desolation yet to come. Antiochus Epiphanes clearly did that, but that was before Jesus Christ lived and said that I'm talking about Daniel and it hadn't happened yet. So you have to, as we've always said, you have to read the scriptures broadly and take all of this into concept when you try to interpret it. Now, there's one final thing that I want to talk about in verse 25 and a little technical and we won't spend much time here but it's worth at least mentioning because of the way we talk about this today you know it says that there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks until from the issuing of a decree 
until the Messiah, or until a Messiah, depending on which translation you, you use. And so I started looking at this term Messiah and said, you know, we, it's commonly used today, right? We talk about the Messiah and uh, even have plays named that and all of that. Um, but this term is very, very limited in the scriptures. If you, I mean, here in the New American Standard, um, you see it in verses 25 and 26, Messiah the Prince or Messiah being given. But if you look in other translations, such as the King James or the New King James, which is a good literal translation, this term is not used at all in those translations. Go ahead. Really? But it's not in verse 25? And you're reading a new... And, and you're reading a new King James. Okay, I stand corrected. I know it's not in the King James. I th thought it wasn't in the New King James. If it is in the New King James, which you say it is, it's only in those two verses. It's nowhere else in the Scriptures. It's not in the New Testament. Now, if you turn into an ESV, verses 25 and 26 do not say Messiah. They say an anointed one with an indefinite article. And then, so the only place where the term Messiah is given in the ESV is over in the book of John um, when... Andrew meets Jesus Christ. He goes to his brother, Peter, and says, I found the Messiah. So it's not even Matthew. I mean, John who writes that is he's quoting, Andrew is saying that. And then the other time where it's given in the ESV is in John chapter 4, where the woman at the well, she says, we know Messiah will come. That's the only place. It's given in the ESV at all. Now, the NAS that I use is given here in Daniel. And then it's also given in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew, four times used there. And that's it. So this term Messiah that we throw around, and we think the Jews should be looking for a Messiah, it's not in the scriptures is very, very limited in the scriptures. Now, we are given a verse that kind of speaks to this. The anointed one is what the ESV uses, almost everywhere. And we're given um, in John 141, I believe is where it is. This is where Andrew goes to his brother Peter and tells him, and there's a parenthetical statement made here, 141, I think this is where it's at. Yeah, he, meaning Andrew, found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, parentheses, which translated means Christ. And if you translate Christ, 
Christ means anointed one. Okay, so they, they call Jesus this, right? Or at least the scriptures do, Jesus Christ. So not Jesus, the son of Joseph, but Jesus, the Christ, would have been his title. And meaning the anointed one. So clearly the scriptures do talk about an anointed one. But even if you take the anointed one and you do a word search on that, and you try to find that very, very, very limited. ESV uses it in those two verses that I talked about, then Daniel 9, 24, and 25. But then all the other translations, you only find anointed one in a couple of verses. And you find it in 2 Chronicles 6.42, and you find it in Psalm 132.10 only place in the Old Testament where you find this anointed one and it doesn't refer to Jesus Christ it refers to King David because he was the anointed one by Samuel remember that story and maybe Psalm 132:10 alludes to Christ but you if it is it's very vague and so even in the Old Testament this term anointed one is not used so we go and we throw these terms around willy-nilly, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, whereas if you tried to build a biblical argument, you would have a hard time to saying that Jesus is the Messiah or the anointed one or the Christ. You'd have a real difficult time, except for, look back in that John 1 passage, and you know there are other places we could turn, but John 1 makes it very clear by the very words of Christ himself. Because you, you turn to John 1. I've got to go back there because I want to get this right. So I don't want to cause doubt. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to give you is an understanding that these terms, if you're going to take someone to the scriptures and try and prove that Christ was the Messiah, you're going to have a hard time because the term Messiah is not there. The term prophet is there, given by Moses a long time ago, that did allude to Jesus Christ. But if you're going to try and build a biblical argument about Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus Christ, you're going to have a hard time. Because there are, you're, there are not many references. But there is, you know, there's no doubt that we all, as Christians, believe that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah. He was the Jewish one to be anointed as the Messiah. He was God himself in the flesh. There's no doubt about that if we have true, good biblical doctrine. But you have to be able to build your arguments from the scriptures. And sometimes things that we think are there just simply aren't there. And this is one of them. Now in John 1, start a couple of verses for where I started last time. Good grief. John's after Luke, right? Okay, so, nope, that's not it. Over in John chapter 4. And starting in verse like 23 or 24 in that area, this is the woman at the well and Jesus Christ having a conversation. And just starting 25. 
The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and we know that translation there, it really means anointed one. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus is in Christ declares himself to be the anointed one, to be what we call Messiah that really isn't in the Old Testament scriptures, except for a couple of places. So there's no doubt that the scriptures teach that Jesus Christ is the anointed one. He is the prophet that Moses spoke of. He is the Messiah that some translations say that Daniel spoke of. Others say spoke of the anointed one, which matches what is said here when Christ declared himself to be the anointed one. So that argument is biblical, but don't think you will find a lot of references that say, oh, there's no doubt, it's a slam dunk. He fulfilled this prophet. It's just not there. And, the, you know, it's surprising. I mean, I started looking at these terms and said, okay, let's just do some word searches and see where we find it. And you go, it's not there except for rarely. I mean, at most, any translation uses those terms six times. One uses it twice. The second one uses it twice. The third one uses it four times. The, fifth, the fourth one uses it six times. That's it. That's all the references to Messiah, anointed one, and then you come to the New Testament where they use the term Christ. And go ahead. Yeah. Uh, John 6, where uh, Jesus was talking to Peter, and Peter says, The Lord to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and we come to know that you are the Holy One. Right. God. Yeah, not. He doesn't refer to him as Christ, but no. Messiah, even there. No. I'm curious, though, if the, trans- the words, the Greek words there, are the same? No, I don't think so. Because, I mean, the, the translators are pretty consistent. And, like, New American Standard instead of using anointed one, always uses um, either Christ or Messiah, always. They never use anointed one. And that's just the way they translated it. That's their bent, and that's fine. The ESV, uh, that group of men, use anointed one, don't use um, Messiah at all. And that's just their bent. That's the way they thought it should be. Now, all translators, when they're making their translations, all of them have presuppositions, and write into their translations their presuppositions. Just like in Daniel, they wrote weeks. Why did they write weeks? They should have written periods of seven, right? That would have been a literal translation, but they wrote weeks because they believed that it was weeks. And you go, okay, maybe it'd be better to understand Greek and Hebrew and just go back and read it for yourself, right? But we all can't do that. So you have, to, you have to look at these things because they're, everybody who translates, and I've read, um, there's a great book called The Word of God in English by a guy named Riken, who was on the ESV committee, but it's clear, even in that book, that he has a bent toward the ESV because he was on the committee. You can't blame the guy. But it's a great, you ought to read that book, The Word of God in English because you will discard some of the translations that you have on your, your bookshelf. 
because of, I mean, just read it. He talks about dynamic equivalence, which the NIV is. And on Zondervan's website a long time ago, for the NIV, they used to say, this is a word-for-word -word translation where possible. Where not possible is thought for thought. And you're like, whose thoughts? And that's what they used to write. You go to their website today, that statement is not there. They took that off because it, they're a dynamic equivalent, thought for thought. And there are a lot of versions of the dynamic equivalent. Everything other than ESV, New King James, um, King James, and New American Standard, both the one in the 90s and the one in 20, um, are literal translations. Everything else, for the most part, are dynamic equivalents. And so you have to be very careful what you study. And, and, and now in some places, the NIV I like because it goes literal. But in a lot of places, it doesn't. So, and I prefer NAS over ESV because with either one, you've got to explain some passages. Um, you can't just, you know, say what it says and that's it. You have to explain some things. So you, I was always with NAS before the ESV came out. So I said, why switch when I'm going to have to explain some things that the ESV says anyway? So I just stayed with the NAS. Um, go ahead. Chronological order. Yes, yeah. My particular focus is on the kingdom. And I think that the Messiah is connected to the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And Jesus actually revealed himself back to John when he was beginning to wane in his faith. Are you the one? And what he was asking was, Are you the Messiah? Right. Yeah, yeah, because there's no doubt that John knew that Jesus Christ was a sacrificial lamb. But he, he could, that's not what he asked him. He asked him, are you the king? Well, what, what did he himself say? My kingdom is not of this world, meaning not yet of this world. It will be, but it's not when he was here. It is. Well, he not only didn't pray for the world, he says that he's not going to pray for the world, that I pray for these who believe. That's the great high priestly prayer. Um, I don't pray for the world, is what he says. 
but for these who believe and those who come after them, meaning you and me. You know, asking the Father to hold them in his hand as Jesus Christ could not when he was on the cross. I mean, literally could not hold those that God had given to him. So he asked God to hold them for him. Right. They crucified Thinking it was going to be an earthly kingdom in the first advent. So it is all tied to the kingdom with Messiah. Um, but it's also tied to anointed one, which is a very special term in the scriptures, which is why Christ is called Jesus Christ and not Jesus the son of Joseph, because that refers to his... Uh, Godly part, and refers to his um, his mission and what he was sent to accomplish as the anointed one. Yeah, and then and that's a discussion that is very interesting. Yeah, who's the king in the messianic kingdom? Is it David the anointed one, or is it Christ the anointed one? I personally believe it's Christ the anointed one, but there are others who disagree with me. And that's okay. That's okay. Go ahead. That is, that's why I went through that. Does, does Daniel 9.25, in referring to the anointed one literally, refer to Jesus Christ? And I think Jesus Christ affirmed that when he said that the one who speaks to you is he, meaning he is the Christ, meaning is the anointed one. So Jesus Christ declared himself to be the anointed one that Daniel literally translated speaks to. But you're right, it's not widespread. It's not widespread. It's a very narrow argument in scripture. It's not what you think when you first look at it. And that term Messiah is not broadly used in the scriptures. Thanks for your time.